Welcome to the Rethinking Learning Podcast. I'm Barbara Bray, and this is where I have conversations on learning with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and difference makers. I have someone I've known for a long time, and I've always, every time I see this amazing person, I want to talk to him. It's Ramsey Musalam. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Ramsey Musalam. Oh my gosh. Sometimes I mispronounce and I have to, I'm so glad that I got it right this time. Ramsey, thank you so much for being here with me today. My pleasure. So Ramsey is a secondary science instructor at Sonoma Academy in Santa Rosa, California. I got that right? You did. Oh, uh, you know, that's a great academy. I've heard some wonderful things about it. Maybe we can talk about that when we get going. But I love what you do. You run invention workshops for elementary and middle school students and deliver keynotes, webinars, facilitate workshops for teachers nationally, internationally, with a focus on using technology as a strategic classroom partner in designing learning environments, grounded in inquiry, fueled by student curiosity. Phew! <laughs> <laughs> I love that you talk about curiosity. I can't wait to really delve into that with you. Absolutely. You're also the author of a great book, and we're going to talk about this book. It's called Spark Learning, and your TED Talk has, I mean, it was the best ever, so I'm including it in this post. You know that, right? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you, Ramsey. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Ah, oh, this is great. So I always like everyone to start out with their own background, uh, where you grew up and a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Sacramento, California. Wasn't much of a student growing up. I was a very, very competitive athlete, actually. Um, and that's how I made my way into college, actually. I got a basketball scholarship and played college basketball um, at Cal Poly Pomona, then transferred to UC Davis, where uh Ended up uh, falling in love with school and learning. My journey as a science teacher started there. Didn't get into medical school and was left with a lot of uh, random science knowledge at that point. So got a job teaching high school science at Sacred Heart Cathedral Prep in San Francisco. Just sort of a, a random long-term sub-position and fell in love with the, with the vocation. And uh, went back to get my credential and my master's and my PhD in education at that point. And that's really how my journey as a teacher began. Well, you you put everything I was going to ask you in one. <laughs> so I'm going to pull them apart. Sure. Basketball. Okay. Yeah. Wait a minute. I didn't know that. So let's just talk about that. In that was in high school, and you got a scholarship. Yeah, yeah. I was very competitive uh, basketball player growing up all through elementary, middle school, and high school. Do you still love basketball? No, I can't oh. stand it. <laughs> I burnt myself out on it. Oh, my gosh. I'm a Warriors fan. I was anyway. Of course you are. Yeah. (laughs) So, well, and then also, you know, when you were young, and I know you liked basketball then, what about school then? Bad, bad. I actually went to sixth grade twice. No. I was a re- yeah, I was a really, really bad student. So, uh, you know, I was a typical child of the baby boomers. My my parents sent me to school, uh, kindergarten a year a year early when, when I was, uh, just had turned four, um, just so I could walk with our neighbor to school or some, I don't know, some archaic reason. 
And then I just fell drastically behind emotionally and mentally, academically. So by the time I got to sixth grade, I was just a hot mess. So I ended up going to sixth grade twice and kind of had a chance, transferred schools, had a chance to sort of reinvent myself. Yeah, even in high school, I fell behind academically. And only I knew that basketball would get me into college, but that was that was about it. Yeah. Wow. So, How did you, yeah. you know, I, I always wonder, because I, I know what my son went through in sixth grade and it was tough. I mean, it, you know, just middle school is tough. And I was a middle school teacher. So I, you know, I, I saw that. But to actually repeat a grade. Oh, yeah. That must have been really tough for you. I don't know. You know, I was just so immature. that, <laughs> And so um, I don't know. It wasn't that tough. I think I knew that I needed to, I think. Yeah, I was just so tunnel vision with sports at the time. And I, and I transferred schools. So mm-hmm. I went to K through six at one school. Then I went six through eight at a, at a different school. Actually, that's so, probably good then. Yeah. No one knew me. No one knew I was repeating. Yeah, I think that's the hardest thing is the your peers at that time. Yeah. So you didn't turn around till college, you said? Yeah, I mean, I I don't even think I am turned around. I mean, I think academically I'm always I always struggle. I'm a very slow reader. I'm not a great test taker. I, I think what I figured out was how to translate some of those skills that I had in sports to academic learning, and I think that I just was able to kind of conserve that energy and ended up just transferring it towards school. So I was a very hard worker around that. Never a good test taker, still to this day, have a lot of intellectual insecurity. I mean, even as a you know PhD and I teach graduate school courses right now and I advance placement course, blah, blah, blah. I think I still have insecurity around my intellectual capacity based on that. But I think that that is part of you know, I don't want to glamorize that. I think that it's easy to say, oh, that helps me relate to kids or that helps me explain concepts in a way people can understand. I think all that are kind of cliches. I think it's just part of my story. It's something that I struggle with. It does help me connect with struggling students. Sometimes it helps me. It, it inhibits me from connecting with students who don't struggle at times. It's just part of who I am. And it was just a journey to get there. I think that's why I see teaching as more of a vocation than sort of an intellectual uh, endeavor, because it's sort of something, it's more of a craft. And when you see it as a craft, then you can see it as something that transcends IQ, you know, or intellectual capacity. Was that, I mean, you were talking about, you were thinking of going to medical school. When, When did you turn around to decide education? Well, I mean, I didn't get into medical school because I couldn't get a good enough score on the MCAT because uh-huh. of my test-taking capacity. So I took it twice. I actually did get into one school. Um, it was on the East Coast. It was my second round of applying. You know, that's a whole different question, though, about did I really want to be a doctor in the first place or was I just trying to prove to myself that I could do something that smart people do because mm-hmm. of my own imposter complex around intellectual endeavors. You know, that, this is a nitty-gritty therapy-type talk. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I think it it ultimately was the standardized test that still got in the way. But, you know, I was left with all this coordinated science content knowledge from having to study for that test. You know, and I think that's I think the MCAT is a beautiful test. I think it really forces people to to coordinate knowledge in a way that other standardized tests don't. Um, So studying for that was really a blessing in disguise because now I teach chemistry, robotics, biochemistry, biology, 
I teach all the different sciences across genre, and it helps me connect them, I think, as a teacher. Wow. You know, you talk about that imposter syndrome. I think a lot of people feel that way, especially educators who might have had tough times when they were younger and yeah. somehow they, so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of nice that you said that because I think other teachers need to hear that they're not alone out there. Yeah. I think it's really easy for the imposter kind of however you want to look at it to be what I remember when I keynoted uh, fall Q in like 2013 and I did a whole little bit during that on that idea of the imposter complex. And I think like it's, it's amplified with teachers because you spend your life as kids being exposed to teachers more than most adults. So they're sort of these mythical creatures that, you know, frolic around and don't grocery shop and don't do anything else. And we refer to them by Mr. And then you see them and, and then suddenly you wake up and you are one. And then you have to realize that, oh, it's actually a human being. And actually, like, I thought that they had it all figured out, but I don't have it figured out. So how does that play into this kind of thing? So it's one of the few careers that all people spend their life watching and forming these sort of ideas and metaphors about who they are, um, which sort of glamorizes it a little bit. And then I think further feeds the imposter complex because no way can anyone ever live up to that image that we've created in our head. That's why I think it's really important to tell our stories because there's so many, especially new teachers, they, you know, they might work with a mentor teacher or a master teacher who is supposed to be this all-knowing expert. But if we show our vulnerabilities, it makes us feel, like you said, more human. It's like seeing someone in the grocery store, right? And saying, oh, wow, you shop here too, kind of thing. It's pretty cool. So, you know, I know you said you taught, and we're going to talk about your teaching journey, but something happened to you in 2008 that really changed you. Yeah, in 2008, I was diagnosed with a, a aneurysm of my aortic arch in my heart, um, just sort of a random find. Yeah, that was just a very existential sort of like life-changing thing where I had to face open-heart surgery and a complex open-heart surgery. And um, right at the exact same time that I was um, finishing up my graduate work at school, so I was in the middle of like diving and reflecting on myself as a teacher, and then at the same time had to really dive and reflect on myself as a as a human. So those those the overlap of those two things was a very interesting time. That's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, I remember knowing you then and talking to you. You also have a big family. I mean, it was yeah. it was scary. Well, at the time, my wife was pregnant with our first daughter. Oh, wow. um, so I hadn't, and then at, by the time when I had the surgery, she was pregnant with our second child. Wow. That must've been hard. I mean, I just being able to go through that and look at your mortality. I mean, like this yeah. could be it, you know, kind of thing. And you have all these, yeah, yeah. you know, and you have these young children. Tell me a little bit about your family now. I have an eight-year-old or I have a 10-year-old daughter who's in fifth grade. I have a eight-year-old daughter who's in second grade and uh, two twin boys who are four and a half who are in preschool. Wow. Yeah. You have your hands, well, you and your wife have your hands full. Yeah. And they all, they all um, sort of mirror the same academic path that I had as a kid. You know, they all uh, struggle in their own ways, which is, which is really interesting to see too. So, you know, when you struggle, I know when I did, it wasn't a support system like there might be now. I don't know how it was when you were going, but for me, 
it was like, I figured it's best for me to be compliant because that's the only way I could get through school. Yeah. But are your, are your children getting a little more support now because of the differences? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So my two boys are in preschool. So that's TBD. My uh, oldest daughter is in fifth grade um, and our school she goes to is extremely supportive. She's actually um, very involved in theater at the school. Um, so she's done really well there and has got a lot of support there and a lot of confidence there. And then my middle daughter, uh, has a formal IEP and gets pull out about 50% of the time. And that's been really, that's been super helpful to see. I teach, I've taught only at private schools and to see what you get from a public school when you, when you go through the appropriate channels. Um, it's pretty amazing the, the support she gets um, because of that legal document. I'm kind of glad you said that because I don't know if people realize all the things that are available for kids in a public yeah. school. I mean, they oh, hear man. there's a lot. And, you know, now teachers are getting even more time and training around the, you know, the differences and inclusion and all the things yeah. that you need to do to support all children. She wouldn't have gotten the same support if she was at a private school. It would have been support based on community involvement, but it wouldn't have been a legal document. So we, like, she has benchmarks she has to reach by law. Um, And then because of that, you have a natural sort of backwards design towards what are they going to do to get her there. So it's, it's a really comforting thing because, you know, by law, they have to meet these benchmarks. And if they don't, they there's new interventions. So there's this built-in accountability that you see that you wouldn't see at private school. Now, I know some schools, some private schools work with a local district to make sure that any child that has that gets those supports. So I wonder, yeah, yeah I, I, you know, to me, this is why I went into personalized learning, <laughs> that whole idea of making sure all children have a support system and that people recognize that we're all not the same. We all are different the way we get there. So you loved, you were, you know, you talked about curiosity when I introduced you, I I mentioned that, but your journey to become a science instructor, is that because of the curiosity? Yeah. So I went into science education because that's really the only content that I, that I had after, after college, right? That was, Mm -hmm. that was my expertise was in this and I couldn't use it towards furthering my education to be a doctor. So I used it to be a high school teacher and that that's what led to that. And then the curiosity piece was really part of this sort of dissonant tumultuous relationship with when I started teaching. So I started teaching in 2000 and around 2004, 2005, you know, the whole ed tech scene exploded just, you know, it went smart boards and they phased out. Then it went Google Docs and everything started just going in this crazy direction with a video um, sort of playing a central role. So in 2006, when I was doing my, my graduate work, I stumbled across sort of this idea of integrating technology in the classroom and then uh, started doing uh, research on inverted classroom, which before it was called flipped classroom and started doing this stuff and forming relationships there. And then when I published my dissertation, it was one of the first pieces of published work on that. So that's what led me to talking with you today, because that was the whole consulting. The, the, the consulting door opened up for me at that point because I was doing some actual uh, 
quantitative research on that. Um, that 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 journey into that flipped classroom world while never leaving the classroom, and I think that was key for me. I kept I've I've never left a classroom full time, so I kept teaching. Like a lot of people, when they find initial success in the consulting world, will leave the classroom to just just to maintain the speaking schedule. Um, whereas I decided intentionally not to do that, and a lot of that was out of the need for health insurance because of my heart, and also the need to just be in practice, not not discrediting anyone who's left the classroom. Because I stayed in the classroom, I got to continuously evaluate whether or not this thing that I was doing in research and in practice was having any sort of efficacy or any sort of effectiveness. And I realized that I felt like my students weren't learning anymore and they were actually demotivated. So that forced me to sort of face, what am I doing wrong? What, is, what, what am I missing? And that led towards the whole journey of uh, how to appropriately position direct instruction in a context of a learning cycle and the role that engagement has with cognition and, and where video can play in that. And, you know, just because somebody's watching something in a video doesn't mean they want to watch it. And really, like, if they, them wanting to watch it is really more important than how they watch it or where they watch it um, at the high school level. So it just led this whole kind of like back-ended thing where I finally said, you know, I, I don't believe that flipped classroom is any sort of paradigm shift. All I believe it is is a technique to be used strategically. It's not a pedagogy. And I think that that was controversial, which also then led to TED and led to a bunch of stuff like that for me. So then it, it, it shifted my whole focus on things. So, Well, I, uh, gosh, we can talk all day about this <laughs> because I, you know, I was in ed tech with you at the same time and coming yeah. up with and flipped classroom came in. The difference is I was a consultant. I was out of the classroom. What I love that you're doing is it's action research with your kids yeah. So they can tell you right away. You can see it right away, what's working, what's not working. Exactly. And so my my goal was to partner with teachers who were actually doing this work. And I saw the same thing that you did, especially high school. High, high school's kids, like when you said motivation, what do you do now to motivate them? What is different now? What I do now is I delay the direct instruction. So motivation is more of a symptom and engagement are a symptom of curiosity from if you look at the research. So, and curiosity isn't just wanting to know something. Curiosity is the awareness of an information gap. So when people are aware that they ha- that an information gap exists, and not only are they aware that it exists, so when you make somebody aware about of something they don't know, but you make them aware of it in such a way where they, it's not too easy to fill, but it's not too hard. So if you kind of find this perfect sweet spot where you give them a little bit but not enough, you can, you can make people feel dissonance in their cognition. And the di- what happens when there's tension, like a riddle. I mean, imagine somebody telling you a riddle that's on the tip of your tongue. So that, what, what, what's in there, motivation and engagement spur from that because they motivate and engage the learner to want to fill the information gap. And that, that's now, like, you, 
the big shift is not thinking about engagement and motivation as being something that's related to teacher personality or teacher classroom environment or the type of activity that you're doing or anything. It's, it's, it's related to the how salient the information gap is for the learner. And when they, when they realize that there is a gap, then you have them right there and they'll do anything for you because they want to fill the gap. Um, so that's what I'm constantly trying to do right now is trying to like figure out um, what do I do before I teach them the content? How do I put them in a position where they are able to know enough but not the whole story so that they tunnel themselves and have to go to me and say, I need more info to complete this picture. And then that's when I'll tell them the info. And maybe I'll do that in a video or maybe I won't. But that's, that's the difference is it's, it's delayed direct instruction. It's modeling the hero's journey in a lesson planning content where the mentor is always in response to a struggle. The mentor is never the one that creates the struggle. You know what I like about this is uh, it's almost like a game. It's a little different or it's, it's a, like you said, an adventure when with a flip classroom, you're giving the information, which you said they may not want, you know, they, but so it kind of boring. Why tell me something before I really want it? where you're giving, this is from your book. I remember reading it and it's like you have spark one is missing information, right? And then two is anticipated solution. And then three is a surprising result. So I want to ask you, do you always give them the surprising result or do you have them share what they found? First? Well, when I say surprising result, what I mean by that is, okay, so I see what your, your question is. So let's clarify first, what you were just reading were um, the ways the literature helps teachers figure out how to create an information gap. So I can, I can start off my lesson and I can present something where information is missing and then they will say, well, what is that information? I could present something that, that isn't resolved and they could say, what happens next? Or I could present something that is so perplexing, it's so surprising that they will ask me, how does that happen? And those are, that's the surprising result in that context. And then once they ask how it happens or how does it finish or what's missing, I then can put them in a position to do some sort of activity to try and find out. Right. And then and then when they try and find out, I have to figure out a way for them to maybe get it or maybe get sucked into a misconception. And then when they present their results, some are right, some are wrong. And I can then play them off each other in class. I was doing this today in class and they're presenting their hypotheses. And I'm like, okay, this is right, that's wrong. And then I bring it all together and say, okay, now here's the actual info. So then you fill the gap at that moment. And once you fill the gap at that moment, their brains are ready for the info in a way they never were before because they've had to, to tackle it for a while and think about it. So, yeah, oftentimes I will, I will always let them present what they think the result is, but then I will officially do a lecture. And sometimes, like today, I lectured for an hour. Like I did a whole lecture and I'm not a lecture teacher, but I lectured for an hour because it was in the context of a post-discussion about some phenomena that they didn't have info on. And they'll sit there for two hours and listen to me. And that's where I think that the whole, like, it's so tricky. And I think we want to, you know, there's all these charts on how long you're supposed to spend with direct instruction a day. You know, it's... It, I, I don't believe those things because I believe that 
giving people information is a complex thing and it all depends on how badly they want it. So if my kids were super perplexed about this case study I gave them in biology and really wanted to know what the solution was, they will sit there for an hour and listen to me talk about it. Um, and that totally transcends all of the other stuff because they're, they're lost in it. They're in flow. And I think it's, we forget that the real goal isn't direct instruction for 10 minutes and then give a five-minute break and then do guided practice. That's like pseudo-teaching. It's like get them in flow so that they're like so in it as if they're watching some sort of episode where they, they're getting all this secret information that they've been chewing on for a while. So I think that that's the stuff that um, is really, really, really hard to do. And I don't think I could even be thinking about these things or talking to you with them the way I am now if I wasn't in the classroom. It's sort of, it's very, very hard to tease out that idea of tricking kids into forgetting they're in the classroom, you know, and that's hard. Have you ever, um, I mean, it sounds like with we always want that messy kind of learning where the kids are so, like you said, some are in the flow over in a corner. Other kids are working, you know, in a little group. And, you know, they're all all over the place because they're really involved. Do you ever video what it looks like in your classroom? That's interesting. I've been, I've been kind of toying around with the idea of doing some sort of, um, oh, I mean, like today in class I did. Actually, if you go to Twitter right now, you'll see a post that I posted from my biology class yesterday, which is a quick little video I took of kids doing this activity where they were trying to transfer heat into a can. Oh, like, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I just did that today in class. So, like, if you, I do little clips like that. I've never videotaped the whole thing. I think that that's a really good idea, though, and I feel like I want to do that. Um, as a way to kind of create a visual, I'm going to write that down actually, to create like a whole <laughs> cycle from top to bottom. But like, for example, what you're looking at right now is I didn't tell them why they were doing that, but what ended up happening was an hour long lecture on like what's happening inside their body as they're doing that. So then the questions I asked were like, I want you to trace the energy. Like, where did you get the energy to, to, to do that? And how did you get the energy from your body into that can and on a molecular level? And then they're trying to make that all up. And then I teach it to them. And then they realize they have a realization about the way it works. Hmm. And then that, that then goes into a discussion about diabetic ketoacidosis um, and how that works. And then that's sort of the transformation of the hero, right? So the hero is called to adventure by doing this activity that they have very limited knowledge on. They're asked to form a, a, an idea about the way it works with so they need a mentor to come and help them do that. That's the lecture. And then we then say, okay, how does this apply to someone who can't metabolize glucose? What, what, what's happening different in their body? And then that's the application. And that's the, the completion of the cycle. Versus me giving them that lecture first and then having them do the activity next where they would have all the info already. And that's a whole different way of looking at it. I just love this. Can we get that video and just put it up on the, you know, on the post that we put with us? That's only because you're just, you just explained exactly, you know, teachers want to do this because we talk about personalizing learning. We talk about changing it. So we reach all the kids in different, you know, all the different ways they learn, but we're not talking about our teaching practice, changing it that much, like what you're talking about. Well, it's so interesting you say that though, because it's, 
it's, I mean, I think a lot of teachers are, I mean, this is just inquiry-based learning 101. This mm-hmm. is not, this is nothing groundbreaking. Any physics instructor doing modeling, any, you know, you, it's standard practice to do the lab first. What I'm trying to do is instead of, instead of thinking about it as a structured thing, mm-hmm. think about it and say, okay, today with this lesson, what, what do I have to withhold and what do I have to give in order to get them curious enough where they'll stick with it, but not demotivated? And so it's like just constantly altering where that spot is. You know, sometimes you can withhold. So rather, and, and that's the crazy thing about it is that for, that's, I think that's to me what personalized learning is. It's not doing something different with each kid. It's personalizing how much I don't give them. You know, so that they can be curious about it. And once once they're curious, they'll do anything. It's like at that point, I don't need to do much. At that point, now it's just explicit direct instruction and guided practice. And it works. It's like done. So, but, yeah, motivation yeah. first. It's like motivation first. And then yeah. their brain, their brain, their brain will work, will work with it when it's motivated. I think that's, that's the hard conversation to have around differentiation, personalized learning, mastery learning. Mm-hmm. It's a hard conversation because I personally believe that none of them are going to work without a level of motivation or they're going to work because kids are naturally intrinsically motivated and that's going to happen in certain environments like mm-hmm. at the college level or, you know, who knows. So, Well, you know, I'm doing a whole thing on the why. I always felt like it's really important to have the why first. And, and that idea, instead of engaging that idea of motivation, is really, really important. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I think I know a new book for you. <laughs> What's that? Oh, why we need to motivate our kids first. I know you have the spark and you have all of that, but it's just, I see you creating this idea. Oh, my, me writing a book. Yeah. You're, uh, the uh. way you're doing it is just, it, it's so valuable for teachers of all, all teachers, because, you know, when I talk to teachers, they're, you know, they're looking at changing teaching practice, but they're still working with existing structures in place that they only know. They don't get it that they don't have to give the answer first. They don't have to get up and lecture and show something and then have people get think that they're getting them all excited and motivated about it. They, they, it has to be authentic. It has to be real. It has to be uh, relevant, right? Absolutely. I just love this. Well, definitely you're going to have more videos, I can tell. And mm-hmm. and you're going to be putting all of this together. I, you know, your book, I still want to put that up and I want people to read it because you really walk people through this ideas. One of the things I tried to do in the book was take the TED Talk was only six minutes and 30 seconds long and unpackage it into the individual rules and then um, break break the book out from there because this the the talk sometimes gets criticized as being a little um, simplified, but really there's a lot of meat there uh-huh. that can be unpackaged. So I, I I drop little hints about flip classroom and Khan Academy and all this kind of stuff in the talk that's really strategic. And I think that the book is meant to open that up mm-hmm. and break it down. Well, we're going to put a link to this TED Talk, but you're going to do another one, I can tell. 
You're amazing, Ramsey. I, I Thank so, you. And, and I'm very, um, I try really, you know, in a nice way with teachers that's talking about curiosity and why we need that back in our learning. And, and But, you know, since I'm not in the classroom now, I have to go, I have to really see it in action and I have to talk to people like you just to get ideas because I'm, you know, it's, teaching is really a difficult profession. I don't think people realize how tough it is. And kids are a little, they're different now, <laughs> especially high school kids. They, they're, uh, you know, they, they, they feel like uh, got, they got everything at their fingertips. They really, you know, not sure they, they get bored easier. And so um, this idea of, you know, what you said, curiosity is awareness of in, an information gap. It is. This has been wonderful. Is there anything that I didn't, we didn't talk about? Anything new? That- no, it's good. I actually have kids waiting at the door. Oh, <laughs> so we better go. But thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Ramsey Musalam. Make sure you check out the complimentary blog post about Ramsey and his awesome story, along with the resources and links that we put up for you. I hope you subscribe to my podcast so you can listen at any time from anywhere. And I really welcome your review and would love it if you share out the post with the podcast. By the way, you can also subscribe to my website, barbabray.net to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.